Hello and welcome to the Life Together podcast, where we share in meaningful conversation about living for Christ and loving one another. Thanks for joining today, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hey everyone, today we are talking about confidence. And I don't know if this has been your experience, but sometimes I think we can view confidence as a negative thing. We're not supposed to be confident, we're supposed to be meek and humble. And so sometimes we dismiss confidence altogether. But listen to this really interesting verse in Hebrews 10.35. It says, Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. We're going to talk about that verse in a moment, but joining me for today's episode is Lawrence Kelly. And uh, Lawrence, I know it, it seems like y'all have been all around recently, like the past couple months, you and Janice have been in Israel, and then I know you had a gospel meeting recently down in Alabama, I think it was. Uh, so just kind of catch us up to speed. Um, how is life for the Kellys? Yeah, things are going really well. It has been a crazy spring and early summer with a lot of travel. Uh, as you said, we went to Israel, which was an amazing experience, and then <clears throat> had our camp, and then went to Lubbock for my brother's 60th birthday, then a meeting down in Alabama, and all of that while still trying to do the work around here. So I'm ready for a little bit of normalcy, which is what we've got laid out ahead of us over the next several weeks. So I'm glad to be here and to be getting into a bit of a normal routine. Yeah, well, I, I feel the same way. Um, the past month, pretty much all of June, I was tra traveling around to Dry Creek Camp and then to NorCal Camp. And finally, I got back at like 3 a.m. Wednesday morning, and it felt so good to know that I'll be uh, settled in here for a while um, and <laughs> get back to some kind of uh, rhythm and routine. Yeah. Um, and I'm excited to get back because uh, to be a part of uh, the preaching again. Um, <laughs> but you just finished up an awesome series on guardrails. Mm. Um, just kind of curious, uh, for, for my own sake, which was kind of your favorite of the, uh, I think there were four or five parts to that. I'm not all the yeah, way caught up, but... There were, there were basically three lessons with a fourth sort of as a follow-up, <clears throat> unplanned. Uh, and it was probably my favorite, which was the last one on humility, which I think plays well into the topic we're going to be discussing today, because... Uh, we sometimes play confidence and humility off against each other. Uh, and, you know, maybe to some extent there's grounds for that, but we can also, I think, sometimes put them in opposition in ways that we shouldn't. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about that. So you mentioned in that sermon uh, one of my, actually probably my favorite passage, may, probably in all the Bible, but definitely I would say the New Testament, Philippians 2, um, right? Count others more important than yourself. Have this mind among yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, all of that. It's just this beautiful, beautiful passage that we've talked about this before, was probably an ancient hymn that they sang together. Most scholars seem to, to believe the evidence can be traced back that this is one of the earliest hymns that was sung by Christians. Um, and we, this, I'm going on a tangent here, but we actually kind of have a modern day version of that. I think it was written by Glenda B. Shales, who many of our people know, but exalted. Yeah. Um, that's, that's taken from Philippians 2. So anyway, cool, good, good stuff. Um, but in Philippians 2, sometimes I think we can come away having read that passage with the thought of, okay, count others more important than myself equals have a pretty low view of myself. Mm. And I don't know if this has been your experience, but for me growing up, that was something that I grappled with a lot. Um, and in my experience talking with friends, with other Christians, say during my time at Florida College or here at Lost River, the idea of humili humility being equated with self-humiliation mm. is, I think, a common theme within conversations that I've had with both men and women. Sometimes we might think this is 
may be more common among women to have a low view of themselves, but I would say it's it's equally distributed in my own experience. And so I'm just curious, let's start there. Like what, what has that balance been like for you in your own life? Maybe what was the teaching like for you growing up? And then what's been your experience over, say, the past several decades ministering to Christians in, in different locations who may struggle with that same balance. Yeah. Uh, a lot in there. I agree. Philippians 2 is just, it's one of those truly uh, passages that stands apart. I mean, all of God's word is powerful and useful and profitable, as we're told. Uh, but that that's one of those passages that's just so uh, key and cornerstone to the Christian faith. And because it does focus uh, first on the person of Jesus and his incarnation, his his uh, humbling to the to the grave and his exaltation back to the right hand of the Father and the name above every name. Um, so that that story is is key to it, but Paul uh, anchors our behavior and attitude toward to that which Jesus has manifest for us and exemplified for us. And the thing that I would take away from that to the point you were making there is that, Jesus, the ultimate example of humbleness or of humility, did not walk around with a problem of low self-esteem. Yeah. He, he wasn't walking around constantly using self-deprecating humor and or aw shucks, you know, uh, every time somebody said you know, something positive to him. Uh, he had a strong sense of, uh, of identity, of vocation, of competency to do the work that God had given him to do always reliant upon the Father to be at work with him and through him to accomplish that purpose that God had sent him to fulfill. Um, and yet he never smacks of arrogance, nor does he consider himself to be so important, though he was of ultimate value, uh, the apple of God's eye, but never does he consider himself to be so valuable that there's uh you know, that I can't sacrifice myself for you you know that that wouldn't be proper for a general to sacrifice himself for a, a private uh but but Jesus does he he never considers his status and position as something to be held on to uh if it meant not being available to serve even the very uh lowest and so I think you know that helps give us a framework to process this by. We're not uh, to think lowly of ourselves or that we're nothing, uh, but we are always to be of service to others, uh, seeking ways to elevate them. Uh, and I think that's where this really becomes an interesting thing. And to tie in with the other question that you had there, uh, for, for me personally, my experience of all of this growing up as a kid and in the church and... Um, I grew up with a very competitive personality and uh, reasonably athletic. In uh, Blue Bonnet Elementary, I was the fastest kid in school. And it didn't matter if you were talking, you know, a 50-yard sprint or the, the occasional time, which was my favorite day of the year, where about twice a year we would do like a mile run. You know, I don't even know if they do that in schools anymore, but in PE we'd have like a mile run. It's the day that every other kid hated, and it was the best day of the year for me because I would smoke everybody in the mile run. And I just can to this day remember how good it felt. You know, I'm the winner, I'm faster, I'm better, and it gave me a sense of confidence and self-esteem. And I, uh, you know, was the homeroom champ in arm wrestling and just, you know, really uh, felt so good about myself. And then I remember getting into middle school and then into high school where you start having all of these <laughs> little schools merging in together and the population grows a lot. And all of a sudden, Vincent Brown was a whole lot faster than I was. <laughs> and there were guys that were bigger, faster, stronger. Uh, and you know, my self-confidence took a big hit. Because I think that up to that point, everything that I – uh, you know, my default assumption, and it wasn't my parents' fault, it wasn't the preacher's fault at church or anything like that, but just as a kid, my default assumption was that I'm basically worthless 
until I prove my worth by showing that I'm better than somebody else at something. Hmm. And since I was good at sports, I, I thought, well, that's the most important thing anyway. Um, kid that wins the spelling bee well that's just because he's a dork and is no good at sports and if he you know so he spends all his time doing that so that doesn't matter it doesn't matter that I'm out in the first round in the spelling bee I'm the fastest kid on this school so that makes me the best and uh you know you you get this mentality where it's your self-exaltation and ability to uh see yourself as superior to others that gives you a sense of confidence and self-esteem. But that is such a fragile thing because like I say, sooner or later, everyone, <laughs> the girl's going to find somebody who's prettier than she is. Uh, the athlete's going to find somebody who can outperform him, whatever area of life, your domain of competition is that you've decided this is the thing that makes somebody important. You're, you're, you're one of these days, you know, that pride's going to go before a fall. And uh, the bottom's going to fall out, and then and then who are you? Yeah. Oh wow, that's a really good start. So, um, I I think it's so interesting how you hit on the diversity of how your confidence can take a hit. So, you know, on one hand, you could be the athletic kid who says, "Well, it doesn't matter." Uh, if I don't, if I get out in the first round of the spelling bee, cause you know, that kid's a dork anyway, who wins it. But then that same kid who wins it could say the same thing about, yes. you know, the athletic kid, like, well, Hey, I'm not that good at sports, but, um, you know, at least I've got a brain <laughs> and I'm smarter, you know, and then also the person who does nothing, who achieves in no way could say to themselves, well, it's, I'm the best at not trying. You know, <laughs> if I tried, I would, I would outperform all of you in all of these things, but y'all care too much about all this stuff. And so it's just so funny yeah, the way like, it manifests itself. I've heard itself. the kids use the expression recently of a try hard. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. somebody who's, you know, out there making too much of an effort. So it's, it's yeah. a status enhancer to be the person who plays it cool oh yeah you know, yeah doesn't. that was a huge thing like from in middle school and high school like it was a big thing you don't want to be a tryhard that's about <laughs> the worst thing you can be and uh, i guess that's still uh around around today um okay so interesting interesting stuff um confidence i think while on one hand you have the kids who um uh kind of you know walk through life with their head uh held high um, you have a lot of other kids um, who grow up with almost the fear of confidence, uh, and I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's been different for me throughout different phases of life, but I can remember moments where pride was so much talked about that I almost became like it almost became like a, a phobia of pride. I was like, man, I feel like I'm right. Pride is the root of every sin. Therefore I'm so prideful and I became fearful of being prideful. And, and instead I ended up kind of just like digging this hole of self deprecation out of a fear of being prideful. Now, that doesn't describe every day of my life. That doesn't describe every phase of my life, but I am very, uh, aware of those moments in my life where I felt that and I can st still think back to those and you know from time to time um, that's a struggle today um, and it, but then there's this passage that we kind of hinted at at the start in Hebrews 10:35 that says do not throw away your confidence what what do you think about that verse in Hebrews 10:35? Yeah, uh, you you've got to have some kind of confidence somewhere, or else you you know you have you have no no spine and no ability to uh, contend with uh, evil. Uh, so there there's or, or error. You you've got to have some some basis upon which to have confidence. I think the focus uh, here is the direct object of your confidence or what you're put, putting your confidence in. It's sort of like uh, Paul's statement that. You know, he's not going to – he could boast in many things, but he's going to boast in nothing uh, but Jesus Christ. And I, I really see that as a focal point of, of this passage is that going all the way back to verse 19, this is again Hebrews chapter 10, 
He says, uh, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, a new and living way, let's, you know, let's, let's keep, keep on doing that. And I think uh, the context of this passage has to do with the um, soon, uh, perhaps, destruction of Jerusalem and, and the, the temple uh, structure, the priesthood, the sacrificial system that was all in play uh, was about to go away, and yet some of the Christians, because of the opposition that they were facing to their uh, Christian faith, were tempted to, to, to go back and just give up their faith in Christ and participate fully in this, this temple model and uh, just you know, let all their troubles go away. And he's like, no, don't, don't lose your nerve. Don't lose your confidence. There's great reward in persevering. Uh, he's opened up a way that we can go to the true holy place. You know, we can, we can go to before the throne of God, so let's boldly go there. But the object of their, their confidence was not in their flesh, not in their accomplishments, not in their ability to prove themselves superior to or better than someone else, but their confidence rested in Christ, and so they were invited to boldly come to God through Him, and 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 you know that's that's what we need. We need confidence in God, confidence in His love for us, confidence in His Word in His Son, uh, and yes, always a humility on our part in terms of what we understand or know, our our knowledge basis. Um, that, that our understanding of something could be mistaken and we should be open to course correction should someone be able to point out to us uh, the error of our way or if just some experience of reality begins to show us that, that we've made a mistake, then, yeah, we don't, um, we don't have the sort of um, stubborn, blind arrogance that refuses to be corrected uh, but, um, you know, that's true for, for any human being who, who's limited in knowledge and, and has to receive um, information through our senses. We have to be ready and willing to, to, to take that correction. But in terms of, of living out our Christian faith, we should have great confidence in Christ uh, and in the way that he's made for us and not uh, crumble under pressure. Uh, these people had already experienced a great deal of suffering and loss and persecution, and uh, he's like, "Why give up now? You know, you need to hold on. You need to persevere to the end." And maybe that's a another good point is that it seems like it's harder to finish than it is to begin. anybody, anybody to can begin to run a race, but at some point the lactic acid builds up, uh, the fatigue sets in, the heart rate gets high, and uh, the pressure to to slow down or to quit increases and and um it's that last 10 percent of any project that's the hardest to get across the finish line and we need that confidence that there will be reward there is a benefit that this is worthwhile to give us that edge that we need to carry it across the finish line yeah uh, i love that analogy and of course the hebrew writer even goes there a couple chapters later in hebrews 12 and maybe that's a good analogy for us to come back to in a little bit but I think it's interesting the point you bring out about it seems like the Hebrew writer is challenging them to ask the question, where is your trust? What are you really trusting in? And that's really what the word confidence means, yeah. right? Uh, you hear the word, uh, I think, I think the word is fider, mm -hmm. con confidence, fider meaning faith or trust. Really, confidence is simply about what I put my trust in. And so it, I guess it could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on what that thing yeah. is, you know? Is it worthy of right. the trust? Right, right. Yeah, and, to, you know, back to this passage, if my view of the the date of the authorship of Hebrews is correct... Uh, then undoubtedly there were some Christians who did abandon their faith you know, or confidence in Christ and return to the temple model in a colossal example of bad timing in that mm. immediately after doing so, the Romans come, burn down the city, destroy the temple, bring an end to that sacrificial system, that priesthood, it, it's no more. And so if you, 
if you lost your confidence to go to something that seemed in the moment more substantial, wow, you really made a bad bargain. Whereas, whereas the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and by now, I mean, maybe we could give them some grace. It was a new thing then, but 2,000 years later, he's, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is high priest forever by virtue of an indestructible life. Every other foundation that you and I could build our life on or have our stake our confidence in is sure to fail. Uh, this is the one thing, the sure thing, uh, that will never fail us. Yeah. So let's talk about those other foundations. Um, there's a really, really cool verse in Psalm 20 and verse 7 that says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Israel, it seems throughout their history, uh, it really came down to a trust problem. And here specifically is mentioned chariots, horses, um, but kind of two things here. What are, what are some of the other things that kind of we can brainstorm and think of that Israel put their trust in besides just horses and chariots? And then maybe from that we can pivot into what are some of the things that we put our trust in today that could be likened to those same things. So what's what do you think about that? Yeah. Well, of course, horses and chariots to them had to do with national defense, right? This is these are uh, high tech military uh, weaponry, and I think the point is that that the psalmist is making is that. It's easy sometimes to, again, look at those physical or outward uh, technological advantages that we feel like we have and put our confidence there. Of course, David already had seen a, a really good example of why that's a foolish thing to do when he went toe-to-toe with a, a giant who, from outward appearances, had every, every possible advantage, and yet uh, <laughs> David took him down because he put his faith, not in Saul's armor, not in his five smooth stones and his sling, but in the Lord of hosts. And so uh, that's where he goes in this psalm. He's, he's remembering that lesson, I think, in that it's not, it's not your size, it's not your strength, it's not the technology of the chariots or whatever else that you're relying on for your security. It needs to rest in the Lord and his faithfulness and in your covenant relationship with him. Uh, I think for us today, you know, we well, uh, let's go back. You know, the Jews subsequent to David's time, I think, really began to trust more and more in identity markers like circumcision, their their ethnic identity and national heritage as descendants of Abraham and the covenant promises. They kind of forgot the covenant curses and just believed in the covenant blessings. In fact, I'm teaching the book of Jeremiah right now. And uh, one of the things that Jeremiah is constantly uh, contending with is the people saying, we've got the temple, we've got the temple. It doesn't matter that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are marching, you know, this way. God will never let anything happen to us because we're the city where his temple is at. And uh, so we, we're not going to, going to fail, even though they were not living faithful to the terms of the covenant of God. And uh, it didn't go so well for them. So their confidence was, was quite misplaced. But I think, you know, we, we today can also um, put confidence, whether we're thinking of, you know, national security and our weaponry and our advanced technology, which is impressive. But there have been other, many, many other nations and empires in history that had every kind of um, military and technological advantage. And, you know, where are they today? Uh, so it's foolish to to think that these things alone are ever going to be an adequate defense or a profitable place to put our confidence, our economic power, our geographic location. We're kind of distant from other uh, continents that pose military threat. So from a national standpoint, we, I think, still have the temptation to trust in chariots and horses. Uh, but, you know, also as individuals, we can, we can trust in our religious heritage, our, our family heritage, our race, you know, the, all of these sort of vainglorious things that people tend to look to and think, well, I count with God or I'm okay because my, my existence is justified as a result of this or that uh, other thing that, again, um, is a transient thing that can be taken from us in an instant. Uh, and then, you know, where are we? One thing that I've noticed it, it seems within our 
culture. I was just talking with someone about this the other day. Um, everything's so accessible to us to where we don't really rely on one another anymore. Mm. Like, for example, um, you know, if I uh, am, uh, I think it's becoming less and less common, you know, if if I need a a tool or something like that at my house, it's becoming less and less common to go and ask your neighbor, you know, well, I've, I've got the money. I'll just go run down to Walmart real quick, pick up what I need and come back and continue the project. Whereas before, uh, we didn't have this absorbent amount of uh, wealth on our hands um, to where, well, if I have a need, I don't need to ask someone else for it. I can just go out and buy it myself and figure it out on my own. And I don't need to ask my neighbor for help because I can just look it up on YouTube. And all these things, I think, contribute to this reinforcement of self-sufficiency and none of those are bad things. Those are, I think, really good things. It's, I think it's great that we're living in a prosperous time. And it's, it's great that we have uh, so much knowledge at our fingertips. Um, those can be really good things, but it kind of reinforces this, this thing that's just innate in human nature to say that I can do this on my own. And the rug eventually gets pulled out f- from under us if that's what we're truly trusting in. And I, I think that is part of the idea of trusting in horses and chariots. Who's who's steering the horses? Who's steering the chariots? It's ultimately me. And uh, to put that confidence in myself is a very risky thing to do and ultimately proves to be to no avail leaves um. you isolated and, and, and to that extent w- weaker. Um, I, I think that's r- really good. And it's, it's uh, that, that feeling of independence and also just our reliance on more and more advanced technology and, and, and thinking of it as um, unmitigated good. And I'm, I'm not a anti-tech person. Uh, I use computers and phones and uh, medical technologies and all of these things, but I've become more and more a critic of the idea that these things are are just pure good. I mean, there's nothing but good from them. It's it's like good and evil are are growing together in all of these technologies. And one of the things that they do is is they do create this false sense of security, and they do um, give us more and more of a sense of of independence and. Um, Isol- and they, they isolate us terribly. And I, I do think that having a lack of confidence in, in our community and in learning to lean on each other, yeah, that's a, that's a problem. It, it also, another way I'm seeing it, I'm seeing it manifest is in, uh, in, in marriage and having children. Those are, those are things that are both, you know, both within the church and in our society at large, things that are being put off to later and later in life and fewer and fewer children. And in fact, a lot of people have begun to notice that, uh, you know, it's not overpopulation that is perhaps one of the biggest threats that's facing the world, but, uh, but a, a collapse and decline in populations. In fact, there are some countries that are in serious, serious trouble because they cannot get the birth rate up and um, the uh, decline in, in population is, is, is disastrous when you start thinking of all the implications. But I've tried to think about why is that? And there's perhaps a lot of reasons, but having a family, having children is, if nothing else, an act of trust. It's an act of hope. Um, It's a confidence that the future is worth projecting yourself into through the formation of a family and having children and, and offspring. And I think if you lose confidence and you lose hope in the future, then why, why, why go to the trouble when you can just, isolate yourself and be comfortable. Yeah. It's a problem. You know, throughout the Old Testament, the way that these things are often described are as idols. Mm. And I think that that's a really good measure of what the idols are in our life. What is it that we trust in? What is it that we lean the weight of our life upon? 
And I think it often is the things that we've been talking about. It's relationships, it's financial security, it's uh, success that I have in my career or perhaps my own talents and abilities. We, we lean the weight of our life on these different things. And when we, when we do that, some, sometimes the foundation of those idols, let's say, are, are maybe we could say are strong enough to last for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point, often in our growing up years, we become a little bit disenchanted as those foundations become shaky and unstable. And those idols start to kind of crumble and fall apart. And then some of those last longer relationship. Maybe maybe I'm leaning the weight of my life, putting my confidence in um, having, uh, you know, being married and having a family. And I lean my life upon that for a while. But eventually even that begins to feel shaky and unstable. And the more that we experience those foundations kind of crack and crumble and, 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 and fall apart, um, or maybe that's too dramatic a way of putting it, the more that we see that they, they don't provide the solid enough foundation that we need, um, the more we come to doubt life in general, yeah. the more we lack confidence, not just of this thing that we put our trust in, that yeah. we're leaning our life upon, but then... Just well, delusioned now, in yeah, general. Yeah, nothing is supporting. And I think that's kind of where we're at as a, as a as a country, as a culture, as a in the world right now. It's like we're seeing these things fall apart. And the well, now and the meaning crisis. Yeah, and, and, and what's the point? Right. And it's like yeah. well, now I have nothing to 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 trust in. Nothing seems certain. And now I'm hyper skeptical of everything around me. And yeah. We're deconstructing everything, and yeah. it's not just Christians deconstructing their faith, though people talk about that a lot, yeah. but you know, everywhere you go, if you pay attention, everyone is deconstructing everything, and yeah. you wonder where that ends, because you can't go on deconstructing forever. At some yeah. point, there's nothing left. Yeah. It's just pure chaos, and you can't live that way. So, yeah, I think getting back then to the point of, of, of asking the question, well, well, then what can we put our confidence in? And it, it's just like, yeah, well, at some point it brings us back to these <laughs> fundamental things of who is God? Um, how has he revealed himself to us? How can I have a relationship with him uh, and find the, the blessing that comes uh, through that? And I, I love the, again, I'm referring to Jeremiah, it's, it's where I'm at, but I think it's in chapter 29. There's this beautiful section in the midst of a really dark book where he's talking to them about all the, the way that they've pursued their idols and how it's resulting in the collapse of the nation. But he says that after you have gone into exile and you're there for 70 long years, um, then he says you're going you're gonna to turn, and when you turn with your whole heart, when you seek me with all your heart, you're going to find me. Hmm. And as I've thought about that verse this week, uh, it's like um, when you finally do get through with all of your idol worship and your pursuit of these other gods and you've been totally disillusioned and let down by them and you turn back to me, you'll find that I'm faithful. Um, and I, I, that's my prayer and hope is that whatever shakeup we're going through and whenever all the deconstructing is done, that at the bottom we'll find a faithful God and when we seek him with all our hearts, we'll find him and, and we can begin to rebuild on a solid foundation. Yeah. Well, in the, in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 20 and verse 7, it's in contrast to some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of, of the Lord our God. And so let's let's sit on that for a while. After we've talked about all the <laughs> the things that seem to to fail that we put our confidence in from grade school all the way through uh you know our 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 graying years, um all the things that seem to to fall short, 
what what does it look like to uh, to put our trust in the name of the Lord our God? Yeah, I think you know, going to, to the un, you know, the understanding of the the, the psalm when he says we don't put our trust in these other things, horses and chariots, whatever our modern substitutes for that are. It doesn't mean that God isn't at work in and through these various mediated instruments, um, but that the temptation is to focus on the mediated instrument itself, the tool, as it were, in God's hand, and rather than the hand that's holding the tool. And whether it's our national security, whether it's our, our families, even our congregations, whatever, the the thing to focus on and put our trust in is never the thing that God is wielding, but at the hand that wields it. Uh, to put our trust in, you know, as one person defines God as the, the ground of all being, um, uh, the one who is uh, eternally a father loving his son in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is eternal reality that we need to be rooted in and um, getting ourselves into the word letting the word get into us. Um, you know, for me, talking about my childhood and my confidence in what limited uh, athletic abilities that I had that were way overestimated in my thinking at the time, uh, and then being disillusioned when I was no longer able to compete at the level of, of others. Um, you know, and I'm not, I don't look back on that with regret. I think it's just part of the process that you go through in life. Uh, but I, what I'm really grateful for is that the Lord somehow in various ways broke through that um, to cause me to, to see that my significance in life wasn't going to be measured by my ability to uh, show myself superior to other people or to enjoy various creature comforts or whatever, but it, that, I, that I had a purpose, that I had a mission, that he was willing to work in and through me to accomplish good things in this world, to bear the fruit of, of his spirit, to build other people up, to point them uh, also to him, and you know, finding confidence that he could use me effectively in that way, uh, well, that's, that's a game changer. I know Psalm 27 is a passage that has resonated with you in the past. Um, really interesting passage, Psalm 27, beginning in verse 1. This is also of David, and it's a familiar, uh, has some familiar lines in it. He, he begins verse 1 saying, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet in this I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon the rock. And we could go on. The rest of the psalm is really powerful if you have time to read it. Um, but how how has this particular psalm uh, resonated with you? Yeah, because as we go through life, we're going to face various trials and uh, adversities. Uh, for David, these were quite literal often in terms of uh, armies uh, or enemies that were literally seeking to eat up his flesh. Not that they were going to do cannibalism, but they were going to try to try to kill him, going back to Goliath and to Saul. And, and then as king, he faced both foes from the nations around him and then uprisings uh, from within his own nation and among his own household. And so with, with all of that turmoil, all of this adversity, you know, everybody, a leader especially, is going to have to have some confidence. He's going to have to find a, a place to anchor 
himself in order to be able to stand against his foes. And ultimately, again, uh, like we saw in the previous psalm, uh, he is seeking the Lord. The Lord is the one whom he tr- in whom he trusts. And there's this interesting thing that he's not just seeing the Lord as a talisman to protect him from evil. That would be one reading of this that I think would be uh, to short change it from its truest meaning. He's seeking not just the protection that the Lord can provide, but he's seeking that relationship with the Lord. He wants to look upon the Lord. He wants communion face-to-face, experience with the living God, and to behold, he says, his beauty. And um, to be in that intimate relationship where you see the see and you taste the goodness of God, uh, that becomes a source of, of strength in any person's life who's able to get to that place that sustains them in every trial, whether it's like these literal enemies like David had or whether it's you know the psychological battles that all of us go through with feelings of, of doubt and uh, self-worth and whether life is worth the living and, and why we should go on and keep fighting our battles. Uh, if, we're, if we're rooted and anchored in the ultimacy of the living God and, and see his beauty and taste his goodness, we find a source, a strength to draw from that doesn't dry up and a foundation that doesn't crack and move like the sifting sand. So it's, it's powerful stuff. I could almost imagine someone, say, in, in David's army, maybe one of his mighty men, when they're hiding out in one of the caves, and they're just like, David, how do you keep going? You know, or maybe there's like an ancient you know, Israelite reporter, news reporter on the ground. You know, David, you've been on the run from Saul for some time now, or whatever this instance is. And he's like, how, what keeps you going? What keeps you going? You know, you got this army encamped against you, people trying to eat up your flesh. What is it that sustains you? How do you still find confidence? And his answer is, the beauty of the Lord, man, yeah. that's what does it. It's like, what? You know, in some ways, it's like, it's almost paradoxical, because you could also imagine, I'm thinking of, like, the movie Braveheart, or some of these, like, Viking movies and stuff like that. It's like, oh, what keeps you going? It's like, you know, my troops, my men, you know, the people that I'm with, or, like, you know, just psyching myself up for battle or something like that. And he's like, no, in the midst of conflict, when it seems like everything is against me, what keeps me confident is the beauty of the Lord. Mm. It, it's just so, that's so cool, but is. cool is not the right word for it. It's so <laughs> unexpected and, and counterintuitive, but, and it's one of those things, if, if, if you had told me before I began to experience the Lord on that level, or you're trying to explain it to somebody who, who never has, it's like, it sounds like gibberish and what in the world are you even talking about? But then when you find somebody who, who gets it, it's like, oh yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. And I, I think an encouraging practical thing for people would be, hey, when when you're uh when you're when you're watching the news and you're discouraged or you've got trouble at home, trouble at the workplace, trouble everywhere you turn, you know, again, just retreat to uh, you know, you, you don't do this permanently, but you retreat to a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God, you know, and you you, you draw from the springs of salvation. You spend some time in the Lord's presence, and you behold his beauty. You taste his goodness, and you're refreshed and, and strengthened and renewed to be able to go back out then and contend and deal with the adversities the way that you need to. And and also then, you know, sometimes you come away from that and, and, and you realize, well, the thing I need to do is not focus on all the problems I can't handle, but I can do something good. I can do something beautiful. I can... Uh, you know, write somebody a note. I can go make a visit. I can, uh, you know, if you're gifted in this way, you can write a letter. You can create a something beautiful uh, that comes out of that place of being in the presence of the Lord, beholding His beauty, and and you are able to bring out of that and manifest into the world something good and beautiful. And and there's great confidence that comes from from just doing something like that. Yeah. Oh, so many, so many good things there. And as an, as another point of application to kind of tie into that kind of dovetail into it, I think the light bulb kind of came on to me 
for for me a few years ago on uh, as far as enemies go within the Psalms. I would read the Psalms and I would see over and over again this this talk about the enemies and how they're seeking his life. And and I thought, what is that for me today? And and sometimes that's hard to to identify. We don't have maybe physical enemies in exactly the same way. We could think about maybe spiritual warfare and the idea of uh, the the devil and his demons doing the work of uh, seeking after us. But the light bulb clicked on for me that was really helpful was when I started thinking of the enemies. Well, maybe I could put it this way. I was reading one day, and I read about the taunting of the enemies. I believe it was like in Psalm 3, and I thought, wow, that sounds a lot like what I tell myself. Mm, the inner dialogue. Yeah, and it's like w- perhaps the perhaps either the greatest enemy or the way that the enemy works the most is in our own minds. Um, and in the voices that we hear in our own mind and the things, the self-deprecating things that we tell ourselves that lead to hopelessness and insecurity and self-comparison and despair about the world or about our particular situation. And so the, the enemies are often in our own mind, and the solution is the same, whether it's looking at the news and seeing the despair of our world, or it's you're, uh, you can't fall asleep at 1 a.m. because all you can think about are the, the voices that you hear in your head that are telling you everything's falling apart. The solution's the same. Look to the beauty of the Lord. Yeah. Look to the beauty of the Lord. Seek him in his temple. And there's a there's such a, a well, actually I'll maybe I, m- I might save that for the end. So. Okay. Yeah, it's what that sparked in my thinking was a passage I was reading just this morning from Second Kings chapter seven, where Elisha is telling the king that the 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 Jerusalem's or Samaria uh, is under siege, and uh, the army of the Arameans, I think, has them enclosed, and it's bad. I mean, they're starving them out. There's people eating their own children. It's as bad as you can possibly imagine. And then Elisha tells the king uh, that by this time tomorrow, you'll be able to buy all the, you know, bushel of flour for a shekel for a little and nothing. Food's going to be so abundant, you know, it's it's just everywhere. And the, it says the man that the Lord, that the king whose arm the king was leaning on, which I, I don't take to be a literal leaning on his arm, but the, his, his chief advisor or something, said to Elisha, uh, even if the heavens were to open and God were just you know to rain down blessing, could, could, this, could this happen? He, he just doesn't believe it. And he's advising the king, I suppose, not to believe it. And Elisha says, yeah, well, it's going to happen, and you're going to see it with your own eyes, but you won't taste it with your mouth. You won't, you won't live to experience it. And then we're told that it happened because the, the, the uh, Aramean army retreats and leaves all their food stores behind, and the people stampede out to glut themselves on the food, uh, and this advisor to the king is stampeded in the gate. So he sees it, but he doesn't experience it. And I think sometimes that gatekeeper that we're leaning on, like the king was leaning on him, is that voice in our head that's telling us that the good things from God can't, can't get to me. I'm not going to be blessed. I'm, nothing good can happen. Only bad things can happen. Uh, and um, we need to have that gatekeeper in our mind, yeah, but in our advisors, yes, but they need to be, it needs to be an advisor of faith. Otherwise, God could rain down blessing upon you, but you you won't be able to receive it because you don't believe that it could come your way. And maybe that's because we don't think we deserve it or worthy of it, but it comes back to what you were saying earlier. We, we've got to come to a place where we realize that humility does, doesn't mean self-loathing or that we don't deserve anything good or nothing good could come our way. God has chosen to make us the objects of his affection and love and is determined to give us a blessing. He has a purpose and a plan. And when we seek him with all our hearts, he's going to open up the doors of heaven. He's going to pour blessing into our life. And if we don't have faith, we, we won't be able to receive it. 
And we want to be people who can receive his blessing and live in the confidence that flows out of that so that we can be a blessing to other people. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's, let's zoom in on, on that. Let's, let's get really practical for, for this last part here, because to the point that you just raised, I, I can imagine, I, can, I kind of anticipate that there's probably people out there thinking, okay, I hear what you're saying, confidence in God don't trust in these other things, whatever you name it, don't trust in self. Um, I need to have confidence in God, but that kind of sounds like that means no confidence in, in, in myself at, at all, that, that kind of self-loathing that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. So what do you think that this kind of confidence actually looks like? Like, what is a healthy balanced confidence look like in our life today? Yeah, well, I love, I love the story of Saul of Tarsus. I think it's really the ultimate example in all of Scripture of, of exactly what we're talking about. Here's a man who's brimming with self-confidence, confidence in the flesh, who he was, a descendant of Abraham, um, you know, of, of the tribe of, of of Benjamin circumcised the eighth day. You know, he can just go through this list. And in several occasions in contending with Judaizing teachers, he, he does that. He's like comparing notes and, Hey, I've got everything from a human standpoint that I could boast in, but I've learned or the Lord has showed me, uh, not to put confidence in any of that. But, uh, that doesn't mean that Saul now Paul, the apostle is going around without any confidence. Clearly he was a man with great confidence uh, and courage and, and ability to go out and spread the, the gospel. But all of his confidence rests in what Christ can do through him. Philippians 4.13, every uh, high school track kid's favorite verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Uh, which Paul there is not really talking about how he can win a track meet through the power of Christ, but how he can endure any kind of hardship, anything that the enemy can throw at him, Paul is going to be able to meet that with confidence, not because of who he is in his flesh, but he, he's like, it's like this. He, he's like, I, I can't, he can, and he can through me. I love that three-step way of looking at it. Every time you feel like you're facing a problem, you're like, I can't do this. I can't deal with this. This is too big for me. That may be absolutely true, but he can. There's nothing too hard for God, and he can do this through you. So again, gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Taste and see that he's good. Let him fill you up. Believe that he can open the gates of heaven. Put something of value in you and that he can then use you and through you to do what needs to be done in the world. Yeah, there's so many ways that we see that in the life of of Paul, um, but maybe maybe we can go back to that analogy that we left a moment ago, and and kind of close with this idea of a race. Um, we started in Hebrews 10, but just two chapters over in Hebrews 12, it's uh a, it's the 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 scene of of a race, and uh, he says there in. Hebrews 12, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. Um, He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Um, so I think it's helpful to think of it as, as, a, as a race. And this is something that uh, you know, I, I'm also familiar with. I <laughs> did the running thing, and I love love running. But and, it, and it's something that I can relate to very much, like that feeling of, right? Anybody can start the race, and a lot of people feel really good at the start. In fact, you see some people who just dead sprint right at the beginning, and 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 you know they're not going to last very long because at some point it gets hard, 
and the things that you thought you could trust in, the, uh, the, all your training perhaps that led up to that moment, at some point, that's not going to sustain you. And that's what I love so much about distance running. At some point, the training doesn't matter. And it's just, okay, what are you, what's going to keep you going? You just have to find something. And here, I, I think it's interesting. You could think of it as perhaps the, we could talk about the cloud of witnesses and, and, and what maybe that means. But the idea of that there are other people who are perhaps witnesses of people who've crossed the finish line or people who are, I know sometimes people think of it as cheering you on, but either way, there's people that you can look to who have done it before. And ultimately you can look to Jesus. The thing that we were talking about a moment ago, beholding the beauty of the Lord and uh, how he despised the shame of the cross. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And there's something so powerful to, uh, simply looking to those who have been through it before you um, yeah. and, and allowing that to be, okay, if I can lean on nothing else, the one thing that I can keep my confidence in is that I, I, can, I can keep going because other people have kept going and somehow God has brought them through. All those people of Hebrews 11, God somehow saw them through. And if God saw them through, he'll so, he will see me through. Well, I think that is a great way to, to, to wrap this up, Jarrett, because I think maybe there's somebody out there listening to us who's just wondering if they're going to make it. And, you know, the answer is, yeah, you, you're going to make it. Um, keep looking to Jesus. Uh, nobody had a harder path than he did, and, and he made it. And at the end, he was able to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Yeah. And one of these days we're all going to do that. I. I sometimes get through a hard day by just reminding myself sooner or later I'm going to be able to sit down on the edge of the bed and that feeling of just laying back and feeling your head hit the pillow, uh, that's, that's coming. <laughs> there is rest at the end. Um, and so in the meantime, just do what you got to do. Keep, keep running. And I like also to tie this back with where I began with my little story of my competitiveness and self-confidence. I love the way this passage says that each of us is to run the, the race marked out for us. Um, and it, it really is true that at the end of the day, we're not in a, a race competing with each other. We all have our race to run and each of our races look different. Um, and I think one of the things that really exhausts us and one of the unnecessary enemies that we fight is is the 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 race of comparison and un not that all competition is bad there, there's a there's a proper place when kept in its proper place that can be good but just the overarching spirit of competition something i've become much much more suspicious of as i've as i've gotten older um just run the race that you've got before you don't worry about where anybody else is maybe they're further ahead or further behind that's not the point. Run the race God gave you to race faithfully with your eyes fixed on Jesus, and you're going to get to the finish line. Yeah. Well, I want to close with the words of a hymn that came to mind as we were talking, and I can't remember the name of it, but it says that, I think it's the chorus that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in his wonderful face, and the things on earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Mm. I think that kind of encapsulates everything that we've been talking about, and I hope that we can collectively say, in this, I will be confident. This is what our trust and hope and assurance is anchored in, and no matter what I might face in my own life, my own insecurities, my own self-doubts, or my own skepticism and doubt about the state of our world as a whole, in this I will be confident, and I'll gaze upon the beauty of the Lord here and now and one day forever. Amen. Well, thanks uh, for, for joining today. This is a lot of fun. We uh, It's been, what, like it was like 20 straight days or so where we were apart we missed each other <laughs> so Coming it's fun fun to be back together and yes. share in these really good conversations again and um, we hope that this has been 
uh, encouraging to everybody.